0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses with the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine and Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining me now is Stu Braden, a retired US Army Special Forces Colonel who is now the president and CEO of the Global Soft Foundation, the organization that each year brings together the global special operations community from government to industry in Tampa each May. Stu, thanks very much for joining us. Know how busy you are as this week gets underway.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate being on the show.
0: Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the United States government. HII, delivering hard stuff, done right. The soft week is always a great opportunity for the special operations leadership to deliver the message of where the force has been, where the force is going. It's as action-packed as it was, uh, maybe not in the same volume as it was when Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were still at their peak. Obviously, there's been an evacuation in Sudan where uh, special operators were integral in operations around the world. There's also been a transition underway for uh, the last many years to great greater focus on the Indo Pacific. What are Stu some of the things we're going to hear from Soft Leadership
1: this year for 2023? General Fitton's primary focus is people and transform, and the biggest thing that you're going to find that that is woven in through all of those aspects, are, is the narrative that you know that Soft is basically going back to its roots, and we're still going to do CT. I mean that mission has not gone away. It's not going to go away in our lifetime ever. Um, we will have you know fits and spurts, but you would be probably surprised of how much of an effort is still levied against that mission set. So, um, but the, the, what you're looking at right now in the transition side uh, of where we go into a near peer competition, the, the biggest challenge I think the soft community faces is everybody thinks soft doesn't have a role. In it. And prior to 9-11, soft was one of the most deployed entities in the world dealing with Russia and China and we just do it from a non-kinetic way a lot of it working with partner nations um, we see more deployments not less deployments in uh, competition and if you read Russian and Chinese doctrine you know that their primary purpose in life is to avoid a major theater operation so we see soft being involved in the competition space there there will be conflict in there as well but it's you know inside the
0: competition space but we see the mission increasing not decreasing across the board um what are some of the tangible ways uh that the training is changing right i mean uh going back a little bit to your generation when you started um, soft was an integral part of supporting the conventional force so this you know throughout the cold war there was a critical role for soft to play uh in what were high intensity peer nation on nation uh conflict what are some of the changes you're seeing and how the community adjusts whether on the equipment side or uh, on the training side or on uh, any any other element.
1: I would use a great example. So, if you look at 10th Special Forces Group and the work they did in 2015, the Ukrainian Joint Special Operations uh, Headquarters was formed, um, and 10th Group fell in on them as their partner force. And a lot of what you're seeing today in that fight is what that Special Operations Command can do against the Russian. Uh, they're about, they're a little over 13,000 people. And what they have been able to do is beyond remarkable. And they have been absolutely the workhorse for the Ukrainian government. You're going to see the same thing in the Philippines and Colombia and all these places. So when you see special operations that's out there in small mission sets, you just got to understand that that's a lifelong commitment. Um, It's built on trust. And I think you're going to see a lot of of our partner nations rise to be near peer themselves. Um, and that's, that's very true in special operations, they have very mature land and maritime forces, aviation and C4 ISR aspects are going up in regards to technology. I mean, you're seeing what precision autonomous systems will do on a battlefield. And it's changing the face of warfare. Um, and I think it's going to make special operations more relevant, not less. Um, and I just believe, that as you know, as time goes on, you're just going to see a shift into precision that's, you know, it's going to make it hard to survive on the model, modern battlefield, uh, in,
0: in Indeed. Uh, and it's really incredible how uh, those uh, forces really are being used. What are, what are some of the most important lessons from your standpoint? There's a lot of different ones you look at, but uh, I, I just still think it gets back to
1: people. You know, you've got to gotta know who you have on your team. You've got to get the right people. And you've got to train them. You have to make a commitment, an investment in your people. If you don't do that and you don't do it up front, um, you, you have no hope um, because you're going to go through those good people. I mean, they are going to get wounded. They are going to get killed in combat. That's just an unfortunate part of, you know, being in, in, in a war. Um, but I will tell you, if you have great people that are smart, that are problem solvers, um, they can take technology and run with it. Often what they do is they take technology that's given to them for a specific purpose. And as we all know, they start to do what most people in the military do. They start tinkering with it. They make it better, faster, and stronger. Um, and it's really good because they work with industry to to, to, you know, to, to do more, not less.
0: I I want to take you uh, to technology and then really briefly on the show itself and what folks should be uh, expecting uh, this year. The soft community really was in the vanguard of rapid technology and uh, adoption. And that's always been the case, uh, even going back into the Cold War, where some of the most novel sorts of capabilities, SOF has a tendency of uh, absorbing it, whether it's commercial, uh, a hybrid, uh, and then actually operationalizing it even for the rest of the the force. Obviously Iraq and Afghanistan are not going as full tilt uh, and and so there's a sense that we've taken a, a seat back. Um, how it you know d- does that spirit continue uh, right That's the first part of the question. And the second is sort of the role that you guys play right I mean I think people misunderstand that globalsoft isn't isn't a you know special operators uh, charity support organization it's actually, to bring global special operations communities and industry together to, to help solve uh, hard, hard problems. Talk to us about the ethos and whether it continues and the role that SoftWeek and you guys play in that rapid, rapid adoption, rapid thinking innovation ecosystem.
1: Yes, you know, I will tell you even with the drawdown in Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, we still have forces deployed. And so I would submit to you that you still see a burning desire to improve the capabilities we have. And so from that perspective, we are pushing industry probably harder than they would want to be pushed, especially when we have a a supply chain issue like we have right now. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about soft not pushing industry. In fact, I think we might be asking for more than science can provide. If you look at the Global Soft Foundation, it's a professional association, much like AUSA, the Navy League, the Air Force Marine Corps Association. And we basically advocate for the special operations. We're a little bit different. We're global. So, you know, we've got we've got folks in 62 plus countries. Um, We're constantly meeting with other soft brothers uh, in the international field and, you know, basically pushing for interoperability. Uh, We want because we are often. Working together in the same battle space, and so that interoperability is critical, and making sure that industry understands that is uh, really really important. If you look at the you know what we're doing at Soft Week this year, it's it's it is different, right? You know, it is not Soft Week; it is Soft Week. It's a wider uh, conference and stuff, and it's going to have different breakout sessions on transition, brain health, professional development. There's over a hundred speakers at this thing, so I think when you hear General Fenton. Um, his message on people win and transformation, it's going to be in all all aspects of the community. So that part is different. From the exhibition standpoint, we reorganized the entire Tampa Convention Center into, we broke it down on the PEOs because we wanted people to, you know, every year you go to these conventions, it's like a treasure hunt. We wanted to break down the like industry section according with the Tampa, P, or the SOCOM PEO elements. And so we think people are going to be able to move faster, better, and and we're going to put folks in a a like space together. So we think that's really, really important. Um, We're using both floors of the Tampa Convention Center, which has never been done before. Uh, We've got a government pavilion. We've got outdoor exhibits, and we've got the soft community corridor with the benevolent organization. We've got more PEO one-on-ones. We had 660 submissions. Uh, We've set up 216 meetings with the SOCOM PEOs. There's 181 companies. In the old days, it used to just be first come, first serve. And, you know, it was not, there was not that much opportunity for the the, uh, industry folk. We've done something that I'm very, I think has got a bright future and it's called the capabilities accelerator rally point. And that's where, you know, companies had to submit um, their uh, quad slide and and a white paper to SOCOM. They were down selected 16 to pitch. Doesn't cost the companies a dime to pitch and they get a shot at the title to talk to all the s capability development folks for SOCOM, so they get their pitch and stuff, and that's going to happen in the, in the Capabilities Accelerator Rally Point Theater, which is, you know, in the showroom floor. We've got live demonstrations this year that are being coordinated. And, of course, we've got, you know, one of the things we've really had to do is we've had to enhance Security Vigo. I, I don't know if you know this, but we are you know pretty targeted organization, and so what we want to do is make sure that um, everyone was safe to include intellectual property. Um, so we've enhanced the security right. event quite a bit, but it's a, it's a great event. I will tell you, it's going to be bigger than, you know, because it is a wider um, event and we're really excited about
0: doing this. Stu, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I hope you guys, uh, have a terrific week there, uh, and look forward to staying in touch and having you on, uh, in the future. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Love to have you down.
0: And a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors, our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does on most Mondays, is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's one of the world's top experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems and part of the CNA team. Sam, a pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great
2: to be back, Margo.
0: An absolute uh, pleasure. So, uh, drama. We've been watching uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, and his uh, antics uh, for a while, the Wagner Group boss uh, posted a temper tantrum last week, threatening to pull out his mercenary and convict outfit from Bakhmut, unless he got more ammunition, standing over uh, the dead bodies of uh, troops, uh, blaming uh, the chief of defense, uh, Gerasimov, as well as defense minister Shoigu, for their fatalities for withholding ammunition. Moscow has been withholding ammunition, expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive to use it there. Um what what does all of this mean, uh, and is this going to be the last tantrum that Prigozhin is going to get away with, because there are those who say that at some point Putin will have had enough of uh, these kind of antics?
2: Yes, indeed. He actually threw quite the tantrum over the weekend. It was a very emotional, expletive-filled video. But it's also likely that the uh, Ministry of Defense cannot really afford Wagner forces to leave their positions in Bakhmut to withdraw and to essentially hand Ukrainians a military as well as a public, a public relations victory. So it is in MOD's interest to keep uh, Wagner forces where they are right now so that they can slowly advance and grind away at the Ukrainians. Again, Russian military, Russian government really needs some kind of victory. And some kind of victory can be achieved by Wagner's and Russian military's continued advance in and around Bakhmut area.
0: Uh, Indeed, an absolutely fascinating situation. Does um, the limitation in ammunition become an issue, uh, do you think, Um, because Shoigu and Gerasimov uh,
2: tend to be cautious? It is likely a serious issue indeed, and a lot of analysts have been cautioning about that. To your question whether or not uh, Prigozhin has enough of sort of key relationships to continue uh, posting videos like that or publicly calling out Uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov, it is likely that he still maintains some kind of pull with Vladimir Putin, likely resulting in the transfer of needed uh, ammunition for him to continue his advance. As far as how long he can continue to do that, again, a lot of discussions around Wagner's usefulness as an organization that is fighting overseas and in campaigns like Ukraine offering sort of plausible deniability where Russian military doesn't have to count Wagner losses, it has to count its own right. losses. But apparently, whatever Wagner suffers doesn't truly matter for the MOD, and so Prigozhin and his effort can still be quite useful to the Kremlin. Again, as far as whether or not he's going to throw another a tantrum like that and post another video where he directly and uh, in a very rude manner attacks. Shogun Gerasimov. I think that's an open question.
0: Uh, it's uh, it's interesting because I view those as crocodile tears. A lot of these troops are going into frontal assaults right into Ukrainian guns and are are, are, are dying senselessly. Um, there's a report that uh, a, a Ukrainian fired U.S.-made Patriot shot down a Kinshal, uh hypersonic uh, missile. The U.S. has been updating the system in order to handle these kind of threats. What does this tell us uh, about uh, capabilities and the nature of
2: the conflict going forward? This raises a lot of questions about what Kinjal actually is, whether it's a hypersonic weapon as uh, articulated by the Russian government or whether it is, as many military analysts have pointed out, an air-launched ballistic missile. This also points to the improvements in the Patriot air defense capabilities and uh, probably points to significant lessons learned for the United States and the Western allies as they study Russian missile attacks uh, and Russian missile technologies, and they're trying to modify Patriot and similar systems to counter similar threats. Uh,
0: Indeed, absolutely fascinating what we're learning from uh, the Russian military or about the Russian military through equipment that Ukraine has captured, just like, unfortunately, the Russians are learning from some of the systems uh, that we've given Ukraine that they've um, captured. Tell us, uh, Sam, a little bit about the Ukrainian attack against Crimea, wide-ranging and seen as sort of an early uh, step in the start of an offensive. That's the start expected next month.
2: Right. Uh, Russian military, Russian military commentators have pointed out that any Ukrainian counteroffensive is going to be preceded by significant UAV and drone strikes. And so over the weekend, Russian media claimed that there uh, there was a uh, wide-ranging attack on the Crimea uh, by around 27 uh, drones. Uh, Russian military claimed that five Tupolev-141 Uh, Drones were joined by 22 Mugin 5 uh, UAVs, and both are quite significant. Apparently, Tupolev 141 was used to strike Russian military bases earlier, and the Mugin 5, as the Russian media and the Russian military claim, is one of the go to Ukrainian drones in uh, striking Crimea and other Russian positions close to the Ukrainian border. The Mugin 5 is a Chinese made drone, it is a commercial drone, it could be purchased anywhere between 10000 to $15,000 on online marketplaces like AliExpress and others and modified accordingly. And uh, a lot of Mugin-5s were actually crashing uh, in the Russian territory around Russian um, important infrastructure and military locations. A lot of uh, Mugin-5 uh, strikes were recorded on such key locations. So this is a strike again by uh, around 27 or so drones. Russian military claim to shoot down practically all of these drones, but this expresses a lot of concern from the Russian military that Ukraine has the capability to launch mass drone attacks. Ukraine has the capacity to modify commercial and military technology for attacks against Russian infrastructure. And again, Russians are very concerned that these type of UAV strikes, whether they're done solo or on the massive scale, are actually a Preceding strike before the actual Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh,
0: it's going to be uh, absolutely uh, fascinating uh, to uh, to watch it unfold, even as Ukrainians try to temper uh, global expectations that this will be uh, a quick action uh, on their uh, part. Um, Tomorrow is uh, Victory Day uh, in Russia, a commemoration of the Soviet Union's supreme sacrifice uh, for victory in World War II. Uh, It looks like uh, in the wake of the drone attack on the Kremlin, Putin is not going to appear in public, citing security concerns. Indeed, it seems like some of the events nationwide have been curtailed. What should we expect? Because this is the second Victory Day that Vladimir Putin can't show uh, anything actually, for, his, uh, for the war he started in Ukraine that was supposed to be highlighted uh, at this um, annual parade and celebration, commemoration, I should say.
2: Right. Uh, May 9th Victory Day Parade remains one of the main uh, national holidays in Russia. Uh, before the war, there were multiple parades taking place across the country. You and I talked about it for years, actually, year in and year out. Uh, the main parade takes place in Moscow, featuring World War II technology and modern Russian military technology. And there are dozens and dozens of smaller parades across Russian cities and towns, also featuring legacy and modern systems. Because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because of Ukrainian strikes against Russian uh, territory, because of concerns that any large gathering of people and military technologies could be potentially a target, a lot of these parades in Russia have been curtailed or canceled altogether, especially in Russian regions which are close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, Russian government pledged that the May 9th parade in Moscow in the Kremlin will actually take place as planned. But even before the May third drone strike against the Kremlin, uh, there were probably uh, rumors that and and concerns that some of the um, some of that parade would be pared down, meaning featuring less technology, probably less military. Some Russian commentators even called into question any type of a military celebration when Russian military isn't doing so well in Ukraine proper. So there's a lot of questions about the scale of the parade on the Kremlin. Just this morning, Russian media published uh, the following news that the May 9th Kremlin parade will feature multiple military bands as uh, Defense Minister Shoigu will be inspecting the troops. And so the question is, are these military bands marching in formations a substitute for military technology, which is supposed to across the Kremlin for all the world to see, or if those military parades are going to augment uh, already existing roster of uh, people and technology, which is supposed to march. And so again, very good questions. If the May 3rd strike was a demonstration that, for example, Ukraine can get to the Kremlin when it wants, then um, there are going to be questions about personal appearances, Uh, And again, the scale of this parade, but we are already seeing the impact of this war on the national mood and on the scaling down and cancellation of some of these events.
0: And and just very briefly, do we know who did it, right? I mean, there are some who think the Russians did this in almost like a Hitler attacking the Reichstag uh, kind of moment. Others think it's Ukrainians, uh, others maintain it's Russian partisans. I know you've talked a lot about this over the last week, but just briefly, what's your sense on who did it?
2: Well, it's not clear who did it, uh, the video is not very clear. We kind of get the sense that this was a, a, an aircraft type, uh, long range UAV. It could have been any number of uh, military and um, commercially refitted models that Ukraine is flying and those drones actually have the capacity to reach Moscow. It could have been in fact, uh, some kind of anti-Kremlin guerrilla fighters who launched a drone close to Moscow, in which case it probably evaded the uh, Russian air defenses. A false-like operation, of course, is a possibility, but it really makes the Russian air defense forces look bad if they were able to intercept the drone only above the Kremlin and not on approach. In fact, there were rumors that uh, citizens uh, in Moscow and in um, regions close to Moscow were actually reporting drones flying towards the center. And apparently those uh, emergency calls either got lost in the shuffle or were not responded to adequately. So again, it's not exactly clear what happened, but it is certainly having a very significant dampening effect. In fact, uh, multiple Russian regions have canceled drone flights altogether, except for uh, sanctioned activity like law enforcement. So lots of people who are developing and building drones, lots of people who want to test their UAVs, lots of people hoping that uh, such uh, UAV activity, regular UAV activity should contribute to... The growth of the national UAV in the industrial sector are now sort of put on the back burner. And so people can't fly their drones uh, in a growing number of regions, which is frustrating a lot of drone developers, drone manufacturers, as well as drone enthusiasts. But it's not exactly clear what happened in the Kremlin. It also shows, if anything, the fact that air defense air bubbles that we like to sort of draw on the map aren't exactly solid domes and that there are gaps and vulnerabilities, perhaps even with the strongest and most powerful and most adequate air defenses, such as those that are supposed to be active above Kremlin.
0: Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, having you on. A great survey of where we stand and where we're going. Thanks again. Thank you, Barbara. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you had a great weekend and thanks very much for joining us. We did, Vago, and thank you for having me on. Uh, it's always uh, a pleasure. Um, a lot of earnings. Uh, discussed it uh, with the team yesterday, but I always like to get your sense uh, and your takeaways from what uh, some of the leading companies reported over the course of the last week.
3: Yeah, Vago, I think most of the major companies, a lot of the smaller ones have reported. There's still a couple to go, uh, both in the Europe, Europe and in the United States. But You know, I think there's enough data you can draw some general conclusions. And, you know, what I wrote about, what I thought struck out for me was, first, um, you know, I look at these companies not necessarily in total, but really just their defense segments. Because obviously with a company like Boeing, you know, they're really more about commercial airliners than they are about defense, although obviously they're a major defense contractor in and of their own right. So in spreading the 29 or so um, defense segments of U.S. companies that reported, you know, one observation is 20 of them had down operating margins year over year. Uh, there are a variety of factors that can explain that. Um, I wouldn't call any of this catastrophic or or really, you know, a, a, a major inflection point, but I think, you know, it kind of gets to the inflation cost. Um, that the companies are experiencing, the mix issues, the labor issues. And, uh, you know, I don't think as much as, um, you know, companies in a number of cases actually beat expectations. Some of those were kind of below the operating profit line. So it's just something to call out that, you know, I think industry is doing generally okay with it, but it's, it's not in an environment Um, where you're seeing an increase in margins i'd say one other factor too is probably the mix of programs um you know the increase in development work is also a factor too um the second point was how little management said about the fy24 budget outlook or the debt ceiling and I, i was really surprised by that i mean i think the comments were pretty anodyne on the FY twenty four budget is kind of like well, it's up three percent, and that was pretty much it. And our programs are well supported, but there was really very, very little questioning of, well, what do you think that the outcome of this budget is? What is your what's embedded in your in your planning? And equally, what are you thinking about the debt ceiling and what you might have to do from a cash management standpoint? This June, July, and August, uh, presuming that we do breach the X date and, and obviously because those issues weren't aired out, it, it frankly bothered me a little bit. I don't know if people are just being too complacent on this. I, I think we talked about this last week. I think management's clearly are <clears throat> running a lot of fire drills on it, but it just it wasn't kind of top of mind as far as as um, as analysts, at least, were drilling down on on these on these calls and what what the issues that they wanted to see uh explained and, and discussed. Um and maybe this is the other observation and again I think we talked a bit about this but the the pace of share buybacks was pretty low uh compared to recent quarters that that may reflect some of the conservatism around you know just the uncertainty about what could play out this year. Um the one final point that I would make was, was really on how companies just didn't change guidance Uh, and and that, you know, well, we had a decent quarter, but we're going to leave our 2023 guidance unchanged. Uh, That raised a lot of questions too. Uh, And the the last and final point was there just weren't a lot of good read throughs, you know, what's basically meant if company a reported results you could kind of draw a line to B, C, and D and say, well, you know, here are the trends in that company's quarter, and they should flow through to the rest of the sector. Um, didn't happen. You know, CACI reported really very strong organic sales growth right. that didn't show up at Lidos. Uh Lockheed Martin, you know, generally did pretty well in uh, the operating margin, although little, little minor dips compared to the year ago. But you know, some of the, the supply chain issues, labor issues did pop up at other companies. So it's just, and the, the reaction of some of these stocks was pretty volatile too. Um, last week was Mercury and uh, and Lidos that I think really, you know, just got tattooed <clears throat> when they reported results. And it really didn't almost seem like an overreaction, but we're in that kind of skittish environment.
0: And what do you attribute both the lack of management statements and the de- disconnect, right? Because normally it is a direct ripple through.
3: Well, I don't know, Vago, as much as it was. And I, I think people are clearly aware. How can you not be aware about it, uh, of, of this issue? Um, I think there's a lot of it is what can they really say, Um and I think I mentioned it was Chris Kubasic of L3 Harris who was interviewed on CNBC. And he basically said, look, you know, he, he said what I think any prudent management would say, which is we're looking at this, you know, we're, we're examining it and studying it very hard. But, you, you know, for me, you know, what, what should have come out in some of these calls is our guidance assumes this. Or, right. you know, hey, if let's just hypothetically say that we have that we breach the X date you know, how do you think that's going to impact your uh, your cash management um, over over the course of those days or weeks that that may occur? How will that affect your share repurchases? Um, how is that going to impact what you need to get down to your supply chain? So, you know, they're, they're just a lot of questions. And as I said, they may well have come up in some of the private conversations that people had after um, results were reported, but... Um, You know, it just, it it just, it was a curious omission for something to me that's really a, a very, very big issue for this sector right now.
0: And uh, let's uh, briefly talk about debt default. Uh, tomorrow, the president is going to be meeting uh, with lawmakers in order to try to see, you know, and, and there's this sense there might be a one-year uh, moratorium uh, in, in some respects, right, raise the ceiling. There's a whole bunch of rhetoric that's going back and forth. What's your uh, expectation uh, at the moment? And what are the implications? Because,
3: i very you know, there are excited. some
0: people in capital markets paying attention to this and there are others who are, you yeah. know, right? I mean, like, it's only a one percent debt default. Uh right. I mean, if, if you look at it, it's it's like a one percent risk or something like that now, right? Yeah, but, but I mean, on, I right?
3: think it's just it's the principle that matters. And the other part about it is, you know, it's one of those things that will unfortunately grow on you, you know, the longer goes on. I I think that it's the second Wednesday, third Wednesday, and fourth Wednesday in every month that Social Security payments are made. So I think, you know, that's why I do think um you know, yeah, there, there's a, a sense, oh, they're going to fix this. It'll be fine. You know, we'll, we'll get something done. But uh, there's certainly been brinkmanship on this. I have very low expectations for what comes out of the meeting on, uh, on May 9th. And, Vago, there was a public opinion poll that I saw that basically the Americans who responded to the poll said they kind of equally blame Republicans and President Biden for this, or they blame both parties so neither neither party in this negotiation is really feeling any heat yet to resolve it and that's why i think you know i think until you start seeing that blowtorch of public opinion that oh my god you know my my mother's missed her social security payment or you know i'm not getting paid on the invoices that i just submitted you know it, it's i think going to be the um the 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 factor that will start to really tilt this debate, you know, to get it resolved. And uh, uh, yeah, I I think kick the can is the most likely scenario, you know, but I I think we're going to let the can sit in the ground for a while and bake in the sun. And uh, it's going to be a hot can when it does get kicked.
0: Wow. That is the most profound can analogy uh, we have ever had on this this program. (laughs) Um, And give us uh, your look ahead at the week and what the audience should be paying attention to
3: well there's still oversight hearings in congress i think the, the most important one will be the senate appropriations defense subcommittee is taking up the fy24 budget um that will be interesting just to see kind of how these debt ceiling and and potential cuts to defense spending are framed during that hearing what's the posturing on it um <clears throat> there's a uh ash carter center kind of defense innovation event that's all day um on the 9th and <clears throat> you know, really kind of the whole innovation um, theme for the Department of Defense. I think what'll be interesting is one of the speakers is General Brown, who you had interviewed at AFA. And I guess who, there were multiple reports that he's gonna be nominated as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So um, I'll be looking forward to what he says and what some of the other panelists talk about that uh, as well. There's also a couple of congressional hearings. The one that besides the the Senate, Appropriations Defense Committee. There's a House Oversight Committee hearing on U.S. shipbuilding capacity. Um, It's kind of unusual because you typically don't see PEOs, program executive officers, appear as witnesses. And I think it'll be interesting just to kind of, it'll get to the root of some of these labor and supply issues that really have been a factor in what I see as kind of Navy reticence to uh, request an additional DDG fifty one, or go for more frigates. Uh, they, they just are concerned that the industrial base can't handle this. So it's going to be interesting to hear, kind of what comes out of that hearing, and and also how that how the contractors themselves respond to it.
0: Uh, it is going to be uh, interesting indeed. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Have a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week.
1: You too, Vago. Thank you.